Welcome to another edition of Essential Environmental. Today, we're going to be talking about a California statute, the California Environmental Equality Act, hotly litigated, has for decades. And we're going to be talking about a couple of uh, new, new cases and uh, a new um, policy for um, developers, cities, those that are making an application to develop property and have to comply with CEQA. We have a guest with us today, Tina Wallace, friend of mine, a fellow CEQA practitioner who also represents uh, developers. And um, well, I think you represent maybe more developers than I do. I represent, you know, a lot of municipalities, but um, both parties would be working hand in hand, largely to go through the CEQA process. So we're going to talk about a couple, uh, some interesting cases and um, building in um, wildlife and wildfire prone areas. So first of all, give you a little background. President Reagan enacted the California Environmental Quality Act, and we're going to call it CEQA as everyone else does, in 1970 to mitigate the environmental harms caused by major infrastructure projects. CEQA requires decision makers to evaluate and mitigate environmental harms when making major land use decisions. CEQA is a law of wide applicability in part because of how it broadly defines a project. A project under CEQA means the whole of an action, which has a potential to result in either a direct physical change in the environment or a reasonably foreseeable indirect physical change in the environment. And that is, let me give you three subpoints here, an activity directly undertaken by a public agency, including but not limited to public works, construction, and related activities, clearing or grading of land, improvement to existing public structures, enactment and amendment of zoning ordinances, and the adoption and amendment of local general plans or elements thereof. An activity also constitutes one undertaken by a person which is supported in whole or in part through public agency contracts, grant subsidies, or other forms of assistance from one or more public agencies. And finally, an activity can also constitute one involving the issuance to a person of a lease, permit, license, certificate, or other entitlement for use by one or more public agencies. CEQA affords individuals and organizations the right to sue a public agency or a developer on grounds of a project impact or impending project impact. In a state as large and diverse as California, there are varying opinions regarding environmental harms, and CEQA should function as a tool of direct democracy and accountability. However, individuals or organizations can use CEQA to stymie, veto, or disrupt public projects for self-interest or for reasons that are not tied to environmental protection. When controversial cases come along, 
there's always a renewed cry for sequel reforms. In this session, we will analyze some recent sequel rulings addressing population growth and infilled housing in urban areas and expanding development into natural areas, um, green zones instead of brownfields, greenfields, and the corresponding wildfire risk. So let us introduce our guest, Tina Wallace, uh, a CEQA attorney, a land use attorney as well, um, from Sonoma County, Santa Rosa. Please, I will, uh, I always uh, let my guests introduce themselves and if they're being too humble, I might throw some things in. You're very kind. Thank you. And thank you for having me today. Um, as you mentioned, I'm based out of Sonoma County, but I do CEQA and land use projects throughout California. I started my career as an in-house government lawyer doing CEQA and land use work. So I understand the agency perspective. Um, I've also done just a touch of a project opponent work early in my career, which helps me understand the project opponent perspective. But for at least the last 15 years, I've represented almost exclusively applicants uh, trying to get these approvals from the various public agencies. And as you mentioned, California is a broad and diverse state, and there are numerous ways to uh, attack projects, oppose projects for good Good reason. Um, as you mentioned, the heart and soul of CEQA is public comment. So it's really important to take the public into consideration. Um, the public, all of us every day read about housing, our housing crisis in California. Um, and you mentioned infill development. And we have a case uh, that I think everyone has had an opportunity to read about in the press. Um, the make a UC make UC a good neighbor versus the regents of the University of California, um, and this is a case. The Supreme Court granted review to this case last month. So we heard about this case when it was decided in the trial court. We heard about it again when the appellate decision came out. And we're going to get to hear about it yet again when the Supreme Court makes its ruling. Uh, I'm going to focus on two issues in this case theory, if that's okay. And those are the issues that the Supreme Court is considering. Um, One issue that the Supreme Court is considering is, did the UC regents consider a reasonable range of alternatives in their environmental impact report or EIR? Um, And uh, did the UC regents have to study the impacts of noise, specifically noise that would be generated by bringing more students to an already urban infill area? Um, from human beings talking, laughing, shouting, and having parties specifically. So those are the the two issues we're going to hear more about. Um, Just to give you a little bit of background on this case, um, the issue is UC Berkeley. Uh, UC Berkeley, like I think almost every other jurisdiction in California, lacks adequate housing. Um, UC Berkeley student population growth has exceeded the on-site housing that the UC system is able to provide. It also exceeded the number of projected students in the university's long-range development plan, which is what led to this uh, litigation when it started a while ago. 
UC Berkeley only houses 23% of its student population on site, and it provides the lowest amount of on-site student housing of any campus in the UC system. Um, there's two really important facts to remember when you take when you think about this case. One is that the UC system must accept a certain percentage of its applicants so long as they're qualified. So they don't have the ability to just turn off the faucet and say, we're not taking any more students um, because that's a mandatory um, policy under a requirement under state law. So UC Berkeley did that. Enrollment has grown. Enrollment will continue to grow. Um, the other uh, important fact to remember is that uh, Berkeley, like much of the Bay Area, has a severe housing crisis. So you can't find off-site, off-campus housing that easily. Um, so as I mentioned, the UC Berkeley prepared a long-range development plan to take the campus, look at the campus growth from its uh, approval through the 2036 to 2037 academic year. Mm -hmm. And approving this plan was a discretionary act that had the potential to affect the environment. So UC Berkeley prepared an environmental impact report, which is the most a robust study that can be required under CEQA. And this was an interesting EIR because it was both a program EIR, meaning it looked at the big picture, uh, sort of a campus-wide development, but it was also a project-specific EIR, meaning it took a really a long, hard look and studied very specifically the impacts of building student housing at People's Park in Berkeley. And... Um, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with People's Park in Berkeley, it is a historic site. It uh, was the site of many anti-Vietnam War protests, uh, many anti-war protests, and it has become emblematic and symptomatic of oppression of any counterculture ideas. Um, and so it's a historic park. Uh, it is a dearly beloved park in the middle of Berkeley. Um, so Berkeley, as I mentioned, did this both program and project-specific EIR. The Attacks on the project-specific EIR that I'm going to talk about again are uh, noise and um, alternatives. Um, the uh, Going back to People's Park, its current use is special events, and there are numerous homeless encampments on the site, um, and there's a currently a history of crime on that site. Uh, the UC Regents bought this property in the late 1950s, I believe, with the intent to develop it for student housing. Um, but as budgets and priorities waxed and waned, it's not going, it's not being developed until now. So there, as you know, in an environmental impact report and the distinction between an EIR and the lower level study, a negative declaration or mitigated negative declaration is that an EIR has to consider alternatives to the proposed project. Right. And um, uh, you're required to study a reasonable range of alternatives that can feasibly achieve the project's objectives. So when you're doing a project, you write out your objectives. Um, and I always review these very carefully because they control the alternatives that you're going to have to study in your EIR. So it's really important to pay close attention to those when you're drafting um, your objectives. And um, here, the opponents argued that the EIR failed to include a reasonable range of alternatives to the housing project at People's Park. Um, that's what's at issue here. Um, in the EIR, the UC system declined to study um, other 
alternative locations for the housing project, um, other meaning other locations to People's Park. And the reasons that they gave for that is that if they moved the housing to a different location or looked at other locations, um, the UC system could be required to purchase other properties. Um, other potential sites were smaller. Therefore, the UC was going to have to cobble together multiple smaller sites that would potentially reduce the number of beds available to house students on site. Um, other sites would not have would not reduce the impact to the historic to historic resources, namely the demolition of parts structures and parts of People's Park, and also having more smaller sites would result in more ground disturbance and greater construction impacts. Um, the court disagreed with the UC system's um, position and arguments. Uh, and their undoing was their own long-range development plan. Um, the long-range development plan for the campus went out of its way to say, this is a plan. It is not a hard and fast commitment to build a specific number of units. Um, the long-range development plan also specifically contemplated buying more properties in the future and went so far as to give guidelines to help uh, narrow future property purchase, future property acquisitions. Um, and it also identified three nearby sites for student housing that would provide more beds than was being proposed at People's Park um, at that development. So the court, those are some of the reasons the court disagreed with the regent's position. Um, there is also no evidence that having smaller sites, uh, more but smaller sites would increase ground disturbance or would decrease the number of student beds available. So the court said, no, there's ample evidence here that you could have considered other sites. Um, you didn't do it, but critically, the EIR didn't explain why it failed to consider alternative locations. And that failure, because CEQA is a public disclosure statute, and the heart and soul of CEQA's public participation, the failure to communicate why other locations were infeasible in, uh, precluded informed public decision-making or public participation and decision-making. So the court found that the UC system, the UC regents failed to include a reasonable range of alternatives to the student housing development at People's Park based on information that was in the EIR and in the administrative record, or in some instances, the lack of information in I that record. The, the failure to explain is is a common common problem, both as to alternatives and as to the noise issue. I'm, I don't want to derail this, but the, um, yeah, I mean, on both, the university had the information there and, and I think could have addressed it but, you know, but didn't. Yes. And that's, I think, what part of the court took issue with. Now, of course, the Supreme Court is granted review. So right. we'll see how the Supreme Court feels about the evidence in the record. Um, but it is difficult to say that smaller sites would result in fewer beds or smaller sites would require us to acquire properties when your own long range development plan has says things to the contrary. Right, right. So you mentioned noise, the next big issue um, in this case. Um, and uh, I think one important fact is that during the course of this litigation, um, the UC system conceded that CEQA applies to the types of noise that this development would generate. Uh, people laughing, people talking, shouting, playing music, etc. And the real objection here and the real uh, the heart of the opposition is the student parties. Um, and there are, it's a decades long problem in the city of Berkeley. It's a real problem. It affects many people. 
Um, it's, it's a problem to such a degree that the city of Berkeley has adopted two ordinances to try to regulate some of the impacts, the noise impacts of these parties. Um, there's a specific party noise ordinance, and there was also a mini dorm ordinance in an attempt to have a community that was comfortable for everyone. Um, UC Berkeley itself had established and funded programs to do community outreach um, to help blunt the impacts of the parties. Uh, so you have decades of evidence of the city trying to address this issue, the UC Berkeley trying to address this issue, the community to address this issue. And contrary to all of that evidence, the final EIR for this uh, project took the position that noise from students was speculative. Um, I think because CEQA does not require um, you to analyze something that's speculative. Right. Um, and uh, the UC uh, also argued that the noise arguments were the product of bias against students. Um, and the court dispatched these two arguments in very short order and basically said um, the city adopting ordinances and the city's findings in those ordinances are not the product. They're unlikely to be the product of bias against students. That's a government action. Um, but the UC system or the court also observed that this is an ongoing entrenched problem that's been going on for decades. Um, and you went on to require the UC system to analyze these noise impacts because you have literally decades of evidence that these, the noise from these parties is a problem. And so you, they're not speculative. This noise is not speculative. It's got to be addressed as an environmental impact. Um, and again, we're going to hear more from the California Supreme Court on that as this makes its way through the highest level of our court system. It's uh, it's a development in an infill area. It's a development in a you know very much downtown area where noise is you know I don't want to say a constant, but noise is very prevalent. And you know I I like the regent's argument that um, this is this is a dormitory project project. Um, it's not. Uh, noise isn't as critical to the study as, say, if you're building a new project or refurbishing a, a stadium or, um, you know, a, rest, a, a restaurant with a nightclub component, you know, that's, that's bringing in noise in and of itself by design. Um, I'm not going to deny that college students have parties, um, but... Um, I'll be interested to see what the you know what the Supreme Court says about that argument as to whether noise should have been studied both from its location and an infill standpoint, and uh, from the standpoint of you know what's what the project constitutes and not not the type of project by design like a stadium or a dance club which you know which is going to bring in a tremendous amount of crowds and noise noisy people. Well, the interesting thing is we have all these policies that require housing. Um, you know, we desperately need housing. And when we move on to talk about wildfire in a few minutes, um, because of CEQA and other policies and uh, the, the infill exemption, categorical exemption to CEQA, a lot of this housing is being, it is infill development and it is yes. being built in urban environments. So it's really interesting if every time you build housing in an urban environment, you've got to study you know, are, are the people in apartment 15 going to have loud uh, party parties for their children's birthdays? Um, I had a winery project a few years ago where the neighbors objected to an annual cork hunt 
because there would be children laughing during the cork hunt um, instead of an Easter egg hunt. So it really is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. And it will have an impact on all of the, and there are some statutory exemptions for um, infill affordable housing, but it's really going to have an impact on infill development um, and particularly housing, depending on how the Supreme Court rules. Right, because, and it's, I think it's important to note that um, as to both points, the noise and um, as to alt- alternative sites, ideally, the, the, the smallest environmental footprint you're going to have is, is uh, growing in that infill area, that urban area close to the school. Um, you're going to reduce your carbon footprint. And, and the people that are going to be working in the dormitories are the additional, the additional folks that, that have to maintain the dor- uh, dormitories. You know, they're going to be living closer, there, closer to it. Um, and so on the alternative, you know, there's always, there's always the, that argument is, is kind of premised on some extent of let's push that out. You know, let's push it away from the school, maybe put it in uh, a neighboring community, but that increases the environmental footprint, more traffic. Uh, it does, and it increases the environmental footprint, but we're also simply running out. I mean, our ability to just push things out and out um, is becoming weaker and weaker for both uh, physical lack of land reasons, infrastructure reasons, and regulatory reasons. So I think we are going to, we are seeing, certainly I'm seeing more infill development in my practice. I think most CEQA lawyers are. Um, And under the premise that it's easier to develop or it's theoretically easier to develop, to do infill development, it's not always. Um, And and this ruling will have an impact on that. And going back to your, to your point that the, the regents noted, um, you know, they would have to, if, if they're going to be buying up various spots instead of going into People's Park, then they have to invoke their power of eminent domain, which is expensive. And that is further two, two years, two and a half years. Well, on the, on, the, on the project planning, on the front end, to get a resolution to declare a project and then invoke the power of eminent domain, you know, it's going to be three plus years of, of securing, that, securing that property and then <laughs> building what you need to. And, you know, they have a long range plan. You know, they, they've already been, um, you know, turning some students away. So that's not, in, that's not entirely... Um, it's a it's an argument, and I could see the court making it, but that's not entirely fair, in my opinion. No, it's not. And you know, UC Santa Cruz was recently sued for approving a housing project in the East Meadows. There was uh, uproar about a year ago over proposed housing development on the UC Santa Barbara campus. So it, it really is difficult when, by law, you have to admit a certain percentage of your applicants, your qualified applicants. So you're, you're going to keep growing, but if you can't provide housing for people, uh, it's really going to be an important challenge for the UC system, which is such a vital part of California's educational system and, frankly, economy. I benefited from it. One, um, one more question on, on the noise. So 
I, I imagine that the the regions knowing about um, the uh, the noise uh, the noise ordinance because Berkeley was fighting them on on that long range plan you know uh, years before but came to its assistance as part of this litig part of the sequel litigation. I wonder why they just didn't um, issue a statement of overriding considerations that you know the noise is the noise issue you know, warrants acknowledging and let's put it in a statement of overriding considerations. What do you think? Uh, I think that is definitely would have been a good tool to use. Um, that's what uh, we you know certainly I try to do if anything's even remotely questionable um, in the UC systems defense. Um, this isn't the first claim that people generated noise laughter talking um, is an environmental impact, but it's the first claim that I've seen reach this level of litigation um, and frankly, this level of success in litigation. So I, I can see a lawyer saying, well, we don't need to do that. It's not happened before, um, but the fail safe would have been the statement of overriding considerations. Because on some level, I mean, this case is going to be uh, impactful and, and we'll see, but, if it if it stayed at um, the court of appeal level, you know we could distinguish it somehow by saying, well, this is really uh, a case in which um, the regents just decided to somehow just ignore the evidence of uh, of noise and could have dealt with it through a statement of overriding considerations. Don't make such a big deal out of this project opponent that we now have to, you know deal with in terms of citing this case. But it, I think it's great that the Supreme Court's taking it up. We'll, we'll see where it goes. Oh, I can't wait to read the briefs and watch the, the arguments. It's going to be really fascinating. Yeah. And then there was, you know, there was, uh, there was the Save the Neighborhood case. And um, that was um, that was remanded. The, the court's order stopping ordering the uh the regions to stop admitting students yes which is how this whole this second lawsuit got kicked off right. yes um that um when I, I you know we both do a lot of writs practices and we know the the limited maneuverability that a writ judge has you know it cannot tell the legislative agencies what to do it can only strike a decision or support a decision based on it's it's supported by adequate you know evidence so it's not arbitrary it's not capricious that judge telling the regents you will stop admitting students that i, I i'm still floored by that the order was the, the order was struck in part because of newsom's um quick uh categorical exemption but um i don't know what that judge was thinking um well, that was a very brave judge, um, <laughs> and and there was a legislative fix. But again, like you, I'm I benefited from the UC system. Um, it's such a tremendous engine in our state in so many ways. It's such an incredible resource um, that that you know it's good that there is a legislative fix. Um, it's it's an important, affordable, really high quality educational resource that we need in this state. So on the reform side, because, you know, you, you type in the name of the case and, and you see various people talking about 
scrap sequa, reform sequa. Um, but that is a tall order, isn't it? I mean, a politician is going to have to take on um, and wrangle with environmental advocacy groups, labor unions who frequently come out against projects, anti-growth folks of, um, of all types, neighborhood folks, um, you know, individuals, not the not in my backyard kind of, kind of arguments. So I, you know, the path of, the path of least resistance could be, uh, maybe carving out narrow exemptions, which, um, you know, Newsom did in response to the, uh, save, save the neighborhood case, but larger, more, um, land use driven, you know, laying out growth areas and non-growth areas and streamlining the CEQA process based on those designations, those land use designations. That's a challenge for politicians. I, I remember uh, when Jerry Brown was quoted, Governor Jerry Brown in his second time as governor was quoted as, as saying, CEQA reform is the Lord's work. Um, <laughs> and and we did not, he was not able to effectuate CEQA reform. Um, it, it's an incredibly tall order there. Everyone feels very passionately, irrespective of what side of the CEQA triangle you're on, uh, petitioner or opponent, applicant or lead agency. Um, and there are no easy answers. There just aren't. Um, I think the legislature is has ended up doing some de facto CEQA reform, particularly for affordable housing, um, by the car, you know, carving certain things out from CEQA. And we're starting to see some of the product of that with the housing starting to really go up. Uh, but, you know, we have a long way to go in our need for housing. And uh, we have a, you know, any CEQA applicant that's going to have a discretionary CEQA process is, it, it may not be an easy ride at times. No, it may not be an easy ride. And as you mentioned, you know, we're running out of land. Um, and so it's, you know, it's not, it's not going to be easy. There, there's data that, you know, you can, you can find there are law firms that keep track of the amount of um, CEQA challenges and what they're challenging and who the challenge, uh, who the applicants are or who are the, um, rather the, the challengers. And, you know, close to 80% of CEQA lawsuits target infill projects, which on some level is, you know, ideal in terms of, you know, reducing, addressing climate impact and, um, you know, keeping your environmental footprint as low as possible. We're not going to, um, I think step one is for there to be an education campaign. People can still have their respective opinions and that's what a democracy is, but we need an education campaign putting CEQA into context, you know, explaining the, um, explaining the environmental footprint issue and trying to get people talking towards um, some form of uh, some form of reform, other than when a when an unpopular case comes out, maybe we can try and wriggle it into a categorical exemption. We have to take a, I think, a more holistic, uh, larger view on the issue. But we do. We need to. I mean, we are one state. 
the communities where these projects happen are one community. Um, and, and we do need to take a more uh, step back and take a more comprehensive view of uh, how do we make this work better for everyone? You know, it would, you know, lead agencies don't particularly enjoy being uh, in the middle of this. Applicants don't care for it and opponents don't like, uh, you know, they, they don't, I don't think that people thrive on going to really boring eight hour public hearings that are highly controversial when they have other things to do. Um, statistically, I think all the studies show that in something like 99% of all land use projects, once the project is built, many of the concerns that people had, that people had don't actually transpire. Um, a lot of those concerns I get, think get addressed through the CEQA process. Um, but I think sometimes what, people really fear in their minds does not come to pass in actuality when a project is developed or that's what the studies are currently showing. Um, so I do think it would be good if we take a step back and we look at this, here were the perceptions and fears before a project was approved, what happened when the project approved and how many of those perceptions and fears actually really happened or were unaddressed during the CEQA process. Well, the foundation could be laid for those kinds of discussions, depending on how the Supreme Court rules. No, certainly. Yes. We'll see. We'll see. Should, should we talk about uh, wildfire? We talked about infill. Now let's talk about, you know, moving, uh, moving out into the country. So uh, I think you mentioned that I, I am based out of Sonoma County. Um, we've had... Um, certainly had our fair share of wildfires here. Yeah. Um, and I think, as you know, the CEQA guidelines were overhauled in 2018 to closely conform to case law. At that time, there was a debate as to whether or not um, CEQA should require uh, wildfire to be studied. And oddly enough, everyone in the debate, irrespective of what side you were on, cited the same case um, and saying that some camps argued that uh, wildfire was the impact of the environment on the project, so you shouldn't have to study it. Other camps argued that uh, wildfire exacerbated or development exacerbated wildfire risk, therefore it had to be studied under CEQA. Um, uh, OPR, when updating the guidelines, included a wildfire section in Appendix G of the CEQA guidelines um, under the premise that development does exacerbate wildfire risk either as a direct impact or an indirect impact. So we now have um, to look at wildfire and its impacts. And uh, there was, just as a point of reference in the hazard section of the CEQA guidelines, existing questions about emergency plans and exposing people or structures to risk from wildland fires. In addition to that, we now have um, section Roman numeral 20, um, which requires a lead agency to look at, um, will the project impair evacuation plans? Will the project expose uh, people or its occupants to risk from wildfires or pollutant concentrations from wildfires? And I don't know if you've ever been uh, stuck in the smoke of a wildfire for a week or two while it burned and smoldered, but it's quite something. Um, would the project require additional infrastructure to avoid uh, impacts, wildfire impacts or other impacts to the environment? Um, and would the, would, would the project expose people to runoff or slope failures and similar things 
drainage changes because of a wildfire. So this is a fairly new requirement, like I mentioned from 2018, and you find it in Appendix G of the CEQA guidelines. Uh, we have one published court decision upholding a wildfire analysis and finding that was it was adequate, um, and many other decisions saying that an agency's attempt at uh, that complying with the new Section 20 on wildfire CEQA was inadequate. Um, so in the in the context of all this, and much like when GHG first came out, practitioners are trying to figure out how to handle all of these things. Um, last year, in the fall of 2022, the Attorney General came out with some guidance on how to comply with CEQA's wildfire analysis requirement. Um, the, the AG guidance goes out of its way to say that these are only suggestions. This is not an additional study requirement for a lead agency. It's not a new law. They are simply suggestions. Um, and uh, if you're working on a CEQA document in uh, an area with wildfire risk, or if you're encountering these arguments from opponents, I would encourage you to download these this guidance from the Attorney General's website. Um, but effectively, when I'm doing a project in a rural area, um, there are some considerations. There's the Wildland Urban Interface, um, WUI, which we call the WUI. Um, so the WUI, if you're in a WUI, that's always a consideration. And if you're in a WUI, you'll find it can be more difficult to buy homeowner's insurance these days, as I'm personally learning. Um, uh, there's, there's also something called a state responsibility area. And in rural counties, the state is actually the agency that is responsible for firefighting. Uh, in large, the, the more rural parts of these large rural counties. Um, and there's also the Cal, how Cal Fire classifies your fire risk, um, which is high, very high, moderate. And Cal Fire just updated those classifications towards the end of last year. So in areas like Sonoma County, Mendocino County, parts of Napa County, um, you get the, the trifecta where you're doing a project in the WUI with a state responsibility area and either a high or very high fire hazard risk. Um, and some of these jurisdictions have been through so many fires and so many evacuations that this is actually a really stressful and difficult thing for the community. So when someone proposes a development in those areas, um, you you definitely get a lot of public comments. Um, the AG and its guidance talked about the consequences of wildfires, which um, even Cal Fire leaders and State Senator McGuire, Mike McGuire are now referring to as mega fires because the fires are so much bigger and more dramatic than they've been in decades past. Um, but the consequences of these fires are the ecological impacts uh, result in habitat loss, um, shifts in the composition of vegetation. Here in uh, Sonoma County, we had the Hanley fire in the 1960s which if you overlay the footprint of the 2017 Tubbs fire over the 1960-something Hanley fire, they're almost identical. The Hanley fire burned all of the native oaks and dug firs grew up uh, and replaced the oaks. When the Tubbs fire came in, it burned all of the dug firs, which had been um, attacked by beetles. So they were just, you know, nice little matchsticks. Um, so you, the, the vegetation comp composition shifts as a result of these fires. Obviously, you have loss of large and small animals, and you have significant water quality impacts because when all of your vegetation is gone from the hillside, um, all that sediment is more likely to go into a water course. Um, there's impacts to people. You know, people have died in fires. They get injured in fires. Um, uh, mass evacuations. I, I think I've been through seven of them here now. 
um, the breathing the smoke is unhealthy. Um, uh, their cost of fighting these fires is tremendous. And they're starting to observe that these fires have a disproportionate impact on lower income residents who are less likely to have insurance or adequate insurance. So they, these fires have huge impacts. Uh, and the AG in its guidance attempted to say, here's how you study all of these impacts. And one of the first things that the AG said to look at is project density. And uh, the, the AG's guidance, by the way, is extensively footnoted. And uh, I haven't read every single document and every single footnote, but there's there's a lot of information there. Uh, but basically what their, their contention is that the uh, where you have cluster development, the fire is less likely to spread, where your development is spread out. And you think of almost so many subdivisions through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. This is the perfect description. They're spread out. People wanted their privacy. There was a lot of land. Right. Those types of spread out development are either more likely to have a fire or more likely to encourage the spread of a wildfire. So, so the AG is asking us to look at uh, the density of your project and how your project density will impact uh, a wildfire spread. Um, the next thing the AG is asking us to look at is how the project is situated in the landscape. Um, I, I, it's fascinating on a project we recently modeled wildfire impacts and our modeling showed that with all of our landscaping changes and our development changes, the wildfire risk of wildfire spreading to the adjacent community would be reduced by about 26%. Um, so I didn't, you know, it was the first time I'd done wildfire modeling. I didn't know what to expect, but I think the AG's point is well taken. Um, these wildfires are driven by topography and by fuel, and the fuel can be vegetation or development or both. Um, but how you situate your buildings and your development in the landscaping, depending on the terrain and the vegetation, impacts whether or not wildfires spread. Um, there are also some natural fuel, break, fuel breaks um, uh, here up here in wine country, um, irrigated vineyards, uh, uh, fire experts that I've used have um, and I think most people agree, most of the fire professionals agree that an irrigated vineyard actually reduces the spread of a fire um, and helps to slow things down. Yeah, very, very so, much. Yeah. Um, you've also, uh, the AG is asking us to look at your water supply and infrastructure. Um, we've learned so many lessons since these wildfires started. Uh in terms of your water supply and your infrastructure. In the Tubbs fire, we had a community where uh, they, all of the water pipes were plastic and they melted in the Tubbs fire. Um, we also didn't have adequate water pressure in some areas for fire, Fighting uh, fire, the fire. flow. Yeah. yeah. And so that's a, been a really fascinating thing that the AG is asking us to, to look at. Um, the AG is encouraging local agencies to develop significance thresholds, which we're all familiar with from CEQA, but that is a really tall order given that one jurisdiction could have, you know, an urban setting, a suburban setting, a rural setting. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to take agencies some time to, to wrestle with that issue. Right. And agencies are still understaffed. <laughs> really understaffed. Yes. And uh, anytime there is a fire, all of your agency staff get pulled into the emergency operations center and all land use and sequel work stops while they address the disaster. Um, one big thing that we're seeing the courts really focus on in the context of CEQA's wildfire analysis is evacuation and emergency access. 
Uh, and it's really important to remember there's two components to that. One is getting people out, evacuation, and the other is getting first responders in. And the, the goal is that you get all the people out so the firefighters can go in and do their job and they don't have to worry about the people. Um, you lose, there's less property damage um, because the fire doesn't spread as fast and there's less structure damage because the firefighters can concentrate and do their jobs and focus because all of the people are out. So I'm seeing this a lot in projects in Northern California. Um, I think the AG is asking us to consider how will this development impact evacuation times? Uh, it, will it increase evacuation times? You know, if you build a housing development or a winery, um, well, I did a cemetery that did not have a large impact on evacuations, um, a shopping center, things like that. Um, all those people hop on the same roads to, you know, to get to the facility, to evacuate from the facility. So it's really important to look at how will this facility, how many people will it put on the road during an evacuation? And the AG cautions against using ordinary traffic modeling that we, we were all used to under the old LOS model that of course now we use VMT, but they caution against using that same data for evacuation calculations because traffic conditions are different emergency, during the yeah, emergency conditions are completely different. Yeah, so they uh, the AG is uh, encouraging modeling. Um, I've done some of this in recent projects where we pick a study area, a geographic study area, um, uh, we, we figure out how much traffic we pick, like the worst possible, you know, like the, in one project, we picked the day, but the Friday afternoon before a holiday weekend, so we could get the most traffic on the roads possible and then added our project traffic to that calculation. And, um, that's how we did our evacuation modeling there. Um, but it, I think one thing that really comes out when you do this, this modeling is it's really important to remember that an evacuation isn't always going to be free-flowing traffic. Um, everyone is intentionally being put on the roads at the same or similar times. So you have to have realistic expectations about what traffic conditions are or will be in those circumstances. So the attorney general is asking us to look at, is the project consistent with adopted evacuation plans and how would evacuating the project impact the roads in the sort of the people that were there before this project was approved. Um, so it's a, it's a lot to take in. It's actually been really fun to work on. Um, and uh, the, uh, you're seeing more and more in these projects, um, and I have done them, uh, these emergency shelters, a place where you can shelter in place should you be unable to evacuate. And your animals. Um, Yes, because some of us will not leave without our pets. Right. Um, I, I'm one of those people for sure. Uh, and so um, the AG is cautioning again against an over-reliance on sheltering in place. Um, sheltering in place or an emergency shelter is always viewed as an absolute last resort if only if you're unable to get out. Um, so we're. I have a project I'm working on where we're offering shelter-in-place facilities, uh, not just for project people, but for the local community, but only as an absolute last resort if people are unable to get out. So the AG has given us a tremendous amount of information and things to think about. Um, again, with the fact that these are suggestions, they're not requirements. Um, and towards the end of its guidance, the AG talks about potential ways to mitigate the impacts 
of wildfire and evacuation. Um, a lot of it relies on density and not having the really spread out development that we've all become so familiar with over the last few decades. Um, underground power lines, um, defensible space, which is now required under the public resources code anyway, um, it, adequate ingress and egress, because again, it's you've got to get people out while other people get in. So you really have to think about that from two points of view. Uh, structural hardening, almost everything I do in a rural area these days uh, has significant structural hardening features. Um, non-combustible material, um, things that take a long time to burn. Um, uh, and also uh, uh, fire-hardened communication. Put your communication underground. One of the things that I think we've all learned from what happened within so many of these fires is our cell towers went out. Uh, and I remember driving around Sonoma County for five days with no cell service um, uh, because all the cell towers burned. So really making sure that the means of communication are protected in a wildfire is another mitigation uh, technique. So there's uh, a lot of really great information here. I'm curious to see how the courts treat these guidelines. I'm sure that uh, project... Um, Applicants will say they did the best we could to comply with them. I'm sure that project opponents will say, but you didn't do absolutely every single recommendation here. Uh, so I am. Be, yeah, that was going to be my point. There's in my environmental practice. There's lots of guidance, you know, from regulatory agencies where they say, we want you to test and use, you know, this, this factor to determine the amount of contamination that's there, but it's only guidance. But, uh, it's not a statute. It's not a law like this, the attorney generals. But if you don't follow it, you get hoisted by, you know, your own petard there. And so I see, um, I would recommend my clients follow that, you know, to the T because I see project applicants saying, you know, guidance, it's, it's very comprehensive. It's what, 20, 22 pages. And you, there are a lot of footnotes and a lot of supporting information. That's what you're supposed to do, and I think that's an that's that's a, an appealing argument to the court. I think it's an incredibly appealing argument to the court that the attorney general of our state, exactly. who is a lawyer, not a firefighter, but he is still the attorney general of our state, um, had you know this is an extensively researched document. It's 22 pages, like you said. Um, I, I think a court would be hard pressed to ignore this guidance. Um, if you, uh, for my projects, all of my clients, uh, we follow this guidance as scrupulously as possible. And if something isn't applicable to a project, we explain why, you know, why we didn't do something. Um, but I, I do think it, I mean, it's the only thing that courts have to rely on besides one published decision. Um, and I don't think courts are just going to ignore the attorney general, the state of California's guidance. Uh, correct. Correct on that. Yeah. And it's just one decision. But as we talked about the prevalence of sequel lawsuits, there, uh, there will be more, you know, modeling is going to be, you mentioned the, the evacuation. I, up until, uh, well, from 2017 to 2021, we had a vacation cabin in the Eastern Sierras and, uh, it was a small community. So it's, a 14 mile ride uphill 8,000 feet on a two lane road. And, um, you know, during we'd go up there in the summers 
But the last few summers, they had they had those enormous fires in Yosemite, and the smoke was, you know, it was. It, we were on the other side of the uh, of the fires, but uh, the smoke was just horrible. Un- unhealthy was not even a way to describe it. And when you think about you know, in that in that community, there were folks that had uh, there were some folks that had uh, dog sled teams, mules. So the evacuation process, when you model that, you're going to have to take into consideration not just cars and trucks, but trailers of all sorts and multiple trips. I imagine, right? You get you, one person had uh, I don't know, fifteen, sixteen, or more mules. So. That's that's quite a that's that's a lot of modeling, but um, it's essential. And yeah, I would tell my clients to follow the AG's recommendations to a T. That's definitely what I do, and the the modeling is incredible because with uh, I worked on a horse facility recently, and what we're learning is they contract with people outside of the county or outside of the area. And they have this contract in place. If there's a fire, someone comes from, you know, say San Jose, gets the horses out of the wine country and then trailers them down and boards them in Silicon Valley. Um, So you've got traffic coming in, you've got traffic going out. um, And uh, maybe it's my personal bias or my lifestyle, but no one I know is leaving animals behind. (laughs) We're we're all going to hang out with them. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a lot. It's really interesting to do the modeling, though. Um, But you really have to look at the modeling results with an evacuation in mind, which is traffic conditions are not going to be free flowing in those circumstances. No. And, you know, you mentioned um, the recommendation to underground power lines. I'm all for it. But I have, you know, two uh, electrical companies and. Uh, the last time I asked them what it cost to underground, I think they said, you know, a million dollars a mile. And it's, it's I'm, sure that's, I'm sure that's gone up by many, you know, a factor of, you know, several times over. But No, and, and sometimes um, I have a site where undergrounding is very difficult because we have so many wetlands. So if we want to underground, we have to take yeah. a wetland. There's that um, too. And your regulatory process becomes very complicated to underground. Um, we're we're going to end up undergrounding on that site. Um, but no, I'm all for it. But it's, uh, I think there's a misconception that, you know, instead of buying, you buy blue sneakers instead of black sneakers and you underground. It's just that simple. And it's actually fairly complicated and very expensive, as you mentioned. Right. But from a public perspective, um, you know, whenever these transponder caused fires they just say why didn't you underground your lines well it's and you know do you want to pay how much more do you want to pay for your electricity to uh, to have that to have that project undertaken so but yeah it's essential and i really appreciate the attorney general's guidance we'll call it i really do but that's the situation we're in in many rural areas and in the state, I mean, we have to we have to um, mitigate for that. It's 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 serious, and, and it is interesting. Um, I really appreciate the AG guidance because it gives us something 
uh, as practitioners that we can talk to our clients about. Uh, and and it, you can walk into a courtroom and say, look, we did every single thing in these guide in this guidance to the best of our ability. Um, so it is really helpful as compared to having nothing at all or just letting it vary from a project to project. Uh, but I think the critical thing here and what I'm finding with all of my projects is you have to look at this guidance early on while you're developing your site plan um, because it really does impact your site plan and the size of your project. So, I mean, before we had to look at, you know, biotics and other constraints early on, very early on in our project development. And I think we have now one more critical thing to include um, in that very early project development analysis. Exactly. It's, a, it's as you said, you know, how you set up your project can help uh, mitigate or defend against, you know, wildfire damage. So mm-hmm. you have to, um, you have to take it on um, at the outset, at the design level. Tina, we learned a lot today. I thank you very much for uh, for being a guest. I'm going to give you last thoughts, last comments. Um, thank you again for having me. Um, I really am, you know, in a, in a very nerd-like way, looking forward to seeing the outcome of the UC Berkeley decision. Um, and I'm really interested in seeing what courts do with the Attorney General guidance. Um, so thank you for having me, and uh, I'll closely follow those things, and we'll stay in touch. Well, I think we should have a recurring um, sequel show. Because happy to do that. Yes, when we have the when we have the Supreme Court guidance, we will uh, we will come back on and put it into uh, further perspective. That would be lovely. That would be fun. Tina, always great to see you. Always, always great, great to, to see you. you. Very informative, and uh, I wish you well. Thank you. You too. Thank you very much. Bye.